WSBP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and share yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you, as always, this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, over the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions over God's Word. If you're trying to study a passage and maybe you need some help or an issue in your life or ministry or church that you'd like biblical counsel on, well, if we can help by the grace of God, we will direct you back to His infallible, inerrant Word. If uh, you would like to join us in this hour, you can email us directly to the, in the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. We have a toll-free number. We have a number of Internet listeners who listen in different parts of the country. That toll-free number is 877. Our call letters is WAGP980. Or locally, again, the number is 843-525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply Dictate your question and remain totally anonymous. Rick, let's go to our first caller. I think there's someone waiting, possibly. Okay. Actually, uh, they dictated their question, so let's uh, read it. Um, The person would like to know what the Bible says about what happens to people who have heard and rejected the Bible, but then are in a car accident and have a brain injury or later in life have Alzheimer's. Are they held responsible for the decision they made prior to their incapacitation? I think so. Um... You know, this becomes an issue of the question about the age of accountability and those who are unable to comprehend the gospel. We're doing a series right now on the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. The Bible says that we're to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And we have already looked at uh, what the Bible says about apologetics and our responsibility. And we dealt with uh, just recently on uh, three different Wednesday nights, how do we know the Bible is true? How to prove the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant word of God, the only book God ever wrote. One of the 10 questions that we'll be coming to in this calendar year is what about those people who cannot believe Uh, Not those who've not heard. That's a question in and of itself, like the Aborigine and uh, some guy who's in some remote part of the world who's never even heard of the name of Jesus. That's one of the questions we're going to deal with. But another important question is about those who can't believe. Either they're severely retarded or they're aborted as from the mother's womb or they died a very young age. And I would group all these people together because, again, there's not a single verse of Scripture that gives us an opinion on it, but there's a number of scriptures when put together, there is some plain theological truth. And so there is an urgency for people to respond to the gospel. So assuming someone has the mental capacity to hear the gospel and understand it, that they are fully accountable f- before God. No one can debate that. 
So when you're dealing with someone who, you know, maybe heard the gospel in their 20s and then they're in a car accident and they have a brain stem injury and they are in a vegetative state, they're responsible. If you uh, meet someone who in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s heard the gospel and then in their 60s and 70s develops Alzheimer's, uh, they're responsible. That's why, again, there is an urgency for the gospel. Several reasons. One is you may not be alive physically 10 minutes from now. You could drop dead of a heart attack. You could be gone. Uh, number two, the Spirit of God is the one who initiates with man. We don't initiate with God. God initiates with us. That's clear right from the opening chapters of the Bible when God comes in the garden and he asks a question, where are you, Adam? God never asks a question in the Bible for information. He's an omniscient God. That's, that's not the voice of a detective. That's the voice of a loving, searching God helping Adam to see precisely where he is at and what he has done in his need for forgiveness. So God always takes the initiative. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so there's an urgency. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If God says, I want you to be saved today, and you say, well, maybe later, God, what have you done? You've hardened your heart. And so you're not potentially more open, you're less open because your heart's a little bit harder by decisions that you make. And when people continually habitually put God off, their heart can become so calloused that they can no longer hear. Uh, Jesus in the parable, the sower, uh, speaks a very sobering message in Luke 8 and verse 13 when he describes the first soil. And what we see here in microcosm, we're going to see in a broad spread uh, worldwide way in the future during the time of the tribulation. But he says, um, now the seed, of course, is the word of God. And those beside the road are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes the word away from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So there is an urgency. Jesus made a very similar statement in John chapter 12. He was in a particular city doing some amazing miracles, and they should have responded to them. And so he said, listen, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, and of course, Jesus is the light of the world, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So for this cause, for what cause? Because they would not believe. For this cause, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he, referring to Yahweh, God has blinded their eyes God has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and heal them. So again, there's this urgency. And so some person who puts the decision off, they're playing really Russian roulette with their soul. Now, again, you know, I I think if I had a loved one with Alzheimer's, um, I would still try to share the gospel with them. Sometimes you don't always know what they're comprehending. But my, why wait until that time? Uh, now's the time, now's the time to speak to them about Jesus Christ. There is an urgency, uh, so it's important. 
great question. Uh, let's go to the next one. All right, very good. Our uh, next listener is um, writing us from Texas. He says, my understanding is the Bible says if you tell people what you have given to the cause of Christ, then you'll lose reward in heaven, and your reward is on earth because people are impressed by your giving. I think you said reporting your giving to the IRS is good stewardship because you save on your taxes and can give more to the cause of Christ. I take it telling the IRS is not the same as telling people because you don't actually know the IRS people. What if you go to the local IRS building and talk to people face-to-face? I suppose that would be the same as the IRS in general. But my main question is, what about CPAs? If you go to a CPA and they help you with your taxes and help you save more money on your taxes, then you know uh, they know you're giving because you're telling them. And the CPA knows you personally and probably knows other people that you know. And what if they tell other people? What if... Anyway, you get the gist of this, and the person in Texas would like you to uh, just comment and make sure he's not losing his reward. Well, I appreciate the spirit of the question because certainly um, you don't want to lose your reward and you want to honor God. Uh, In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of three things that should be done in secret, three things that God rewards when done in secret. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. When therefore you give alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. So um, we're not to tell other people. We're not to broadcast, so to speak. Hey, let me tell you how much I gave to the church this week. And in fact, we're we're not even to tell ourselves, so to speak. Our left hand uh, should not be watching what our right hand is doing. In other words, don't pat yourself on the back and say, oh, what a great Christian I am. I'm giving 10% of my income or I'm giving 10% plus an offering. No, there's a sense in which we do it in secret. Now, it's very interesting Because if you look at these three issues, giving, praying, and fasting, there are also three public expressions of each one given in the Word of God. For instance, uh, at the end of Acts 4 and into Acts 5, we see the example of Barnabas, who gives publicly. And he is given in a way that is uh, pleasing to the Lord. In fact, his uh, gift becomes an impetus for the other members of the church, some with wrong motivation like Ananias and Sapphira, but nonetheless it becomes a impetus for others to give. And that's a good thing. Uh, you see the church praying corporately. Jesus, just a little bit later in this same passage when he speaks on prayer, when they ask him, as the parallel accounts indicates, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Not my Father, but our Father. There is an assumption here that there's corporate prayer. Uh, And there are examples of that in the book of Acts, when the church gathers together corporately to pray. There are commands in the epistles to pray corporately. Uh, Again, sometimes I tell people on a Wednesday night service when we invited folks to the microphones to pray, Look, if you, if you haven't had time to pray alone, then don't catch up on your personal prayer life here. You know, it can become hypocritical if uh, the only time I would pray would be publicly. If I don't have a time where I etch out uh, out of my life, time just between God and me. There's even a third issue here that Jesus mentions, fasting and doing that in secret. And yet, 
publicly in Acts 13. There are three examples in the Acts of the Apostles. The church prays and fasts publicly. Uh, So there's a private dimension, but there's a public dimension. So again, you know, when you even give a check, uh, your name is on the check. And someone's going to know the church treasurer or whatever who keeps a record for the IRS's purposes for your good stewardship or whatever. So I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying when you go into your CPA and say, well, you know, I gave $100,000 in this past year and here's the tax records, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think that's the point. The point he's making are people, namely the Pharisees whom he illustrates from in these three areas, and even the Gentiles who, who pray with vain repetition, who are praying, fasting, and giving for all the wrong reasons, to be seen by men, to practice their righteousness before men, to say, what a great person I am. That that's the sin that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about that you shouldn't let your tax accountant you know, be aware. True, they didn't have these quote-unquote tax deductions, and they don't in many countries. And some have often said maybe the real givers will be seen. If the IRS uh, removes that uh, deduction, I don't know, we should give a tithe 10% as a starting place to the local assembly, whether or not we get a tax deduction. But it certainly is good stewardship. If you can only render to Caesar what is due Caesar and you can rend less to Caesar so that God puts more in your pocket to do other things for his work, for his kingdom, for your needs, that's just wise. That's not stupid. And and we give an account for how we use our money. In fact, Jesus makes a comparison in Luke 16 that if we're not un, if we're not faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, what some translations paraphrase worldly riches, then who's going to entrust true riches to us? No one. God says, "Listen, the way you use your earthly funds, there's a parallel between that and what God entrusts to you that is really of spiritual eternal significance. Why is that? Well, again, it's where your money is, there will your heart be also. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. In Revelation 8, verse 1, the Scripture states, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Does Scripture give us the reason why this silence occurred? Revelation 8, And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hands. The angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire, fire of the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And then the trumpets begin to sound. Now, if you remember, in the Revelation, there are what we call trumpet, uh, or seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And they come in that order. Uh, There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Out of the seventh seal, some would say under the seventh seal, you will find seven uh, bowl judgments and seven trumpet judgments. 
Uh, so under the seventh uh, seal, you have seven trumpets. Under the seventh trumpet, you have seven bowls. And so there's, ha- there, there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. Why is that? Well, because something tremendous is about to take place. Just like there might be a, a, a dead silence in the courtroom before the foreman comes and reads the verdict of the jury. And there's a hushness. There's a holy hush in heaven when this uh, trumpet comes. Because what is about to happen is going to bring about death like the world has never seen it. When you when you come to um, a little bit earlier, uh, it, when you're you're dealing first with the uh, seven sealed judgments, and you look at those, and those are recorded in the fifth chapter, a fourth of mankind, according to Revelation six and verse eight, has already been dead, and by the time the uh, the sixth trumpet is over, half the planet is dead dead with judgments of God. And you you read about these angels and what they do and how there's hail and fire mixed with blood that's thrown down to the earth and a third of the world is burned up and a third of the trees is burned and a third of the grass is burned up. And and then another angel comes and a third of the sea becomes like blood and and a third of the rivers and a third of the waters uh, with a third angel become bitter. And a fourth angel, they sound a trumpet and the, the light from the sun and the moon and the stars is significantly diminished. And you hear this cry, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And the fifth angel sounds and this key to this bottomless pit is opened up and you have these uh, demon creatures uh, led by Abaddon or Apollon in Greek. And and it's awful. It is so brutal what they experience. Men want to seek death, but they can't find it. And a sixth angel comes, and, and it just gets worse and worse. And by the time it's done, most of the planet's dead. So, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's staggering. It's uh, There's a holy hush, and the only thing that is heard, and it's not even heard, it comes up in the form of smoke into the nostrils of God are, are the prayers of the saints who are on the earth who are being persecuted. So, yeah, there's silence, uh, a holy hush, because the events that are going to unfold will come all the way until Jesus comes from heaven at his second coming. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning. Um, Dr. Brody, I had a conversation with a pretty devout Roman Catholic, and the conversation was about saints who are saints. And I was trying to reason with this person that uh, those of us who are saved are saints, and according to her, unless you're beatified by the Pope and by you're not a saint, and uh, couldn't could not make her understand to save my life that that you know Scripture is pretty clear on who are and who are not saints. Mm. All right. Well, uh, this is what I would do with a situation like this, because there are side doctrines that we can sometimes get tangled in that can prevent us from dealing with more central, critical doctrines. We we might get into an argument with a Roman Catholic over transubstantiation versus a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Catholics, of course, argue that the substance are literally trans or changed, and so we say transubstantiation to the literal body and blood of Christ. And we could argue that till we're blue in the face, and you might even convince them, but that doesn't mean they're saved. You, you could be wrong, 
on the doctrine of transubstantiation and still go to heaven. You could believe the Pope is God's man and still go to heaven. You could believe that Mary is a perpetual virgin, uh, that she was even immaculately conceived and still go to heaven. It's possible to believe some false doctrine and go to heaven. You could believe that there's a select group of people um, who are selected by the church through the process that they use, and it's rather elongated, in which someone is officially declared a saint. You could believe that and still go to heaven. You cannot believe that salvation is by works, that sainthood is earned uh, and achieved by human merit and go to heaven. So the root of sainthood is really what needs to be dealt with rather than the whole discussion of sainthood. So what I would try to do if I were in that situation is certainly I'd say, well, you know, the the Bible, of course, repeatedly calls God's people saints. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, for instance, um, he says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, uh, with all who in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all God's people are called saints. That's what the Bible teaches, because unlike in Catholicism, where sainthood is based on performance, and the New Testament, sainthood is based on position. The Greek word hagaioi here, plural, literally means holy ones. We are holy ones in the sight of God if we've been saved. Why? Because He that knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so to go to heaven, we need a righteousness that man cannot achieve or earn by human merit. It's a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, Paul will argue in Philippians 3. And it's given through the work of Christ. He made him who knew no sin, who is sinless, to be sin on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus took all the sin of all time, of all time human history, and it was laid on him. He bore, Peter will say, he bore our sin in his body on the cross. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that we could become, because we weren't before, so that we could become the righteousness of God, because that's what we need to get into heaven, God's righteousness in him, in Christ. So the simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament is in Christ. You're either in Christ, identified with him, viewed through his righteousness, or you're outside of Christ, viewed in your own righteousness. And though, you know, it may look better than other people's righteousness, next to the glory of God is found in Christ, it misses the mark and it falls short. I was uh, talking a little bit about this on Sunday. I said, if you're on a 30-story building and you look down, you can't tell if someone's 6'1 or 6'4. They look basically the same. And you may be three or four inches taller morally than the guy next to you. But next to the righteousness of God, uh, we all fall short of the glory of God. So I, I wouldn't try to get captured and enraptured in things like sainthood. I would always try to bring it back to the gospel. But of course, it is a logical consistency in Catholicism because people are not saved by grace alone through faith alone. Good works contribute to salvation. And so they would argue that some have done a better job at that whole process of doing good deeds. And so, therefore, they will select out of the mass of humanity certain people whom they accredit with the halo, 
and those folks are called saints. It's bad theology, contrary to the Word of God. It's enough to damn a person in the sense of their view of how salvation transpires. But I wouldn't get lost on, you know, whether or not, you know, Mother Teresa should be a saint or John Paul II should be a saint or other people that in the course of time the church has declared to be saints. I wouldn't get lost in that. I would always try to go back to the gospel and keep that central and deal with the whole issue of justification by grace. Because when a person then is born again, they receive the mind of Christ. And when you receive the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, you have a new capability to understand spiritual truth. Now, some people are born again, saved, they're babes in Christ, and they still have a lot of bad theology in some areas because they just haven't grown much and they maybe die as a babe in Christ. But if someone is truly, genuinely saved and they're being taught the scriptures, their view will change. They will reject the perpetual virginity of Mary. They will reject that Mary was sinless her whole life, that she was ever sinless. They will reject that doctrine because they will affirm what the Bible says, that she was conceived in sin, just like you or me. Um, So, again, the mind of Christ has the ability to comprehend things. Why? Because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot comprehend, ascertain them, because they're spiritually ascertained or appraised. And so sometimes when we're dealing with issues of theology with an unsaved person, they really need an unrege- they need a regenerate mind before they can understand those things. So better to focus on the things that God tells us that we should focus on and camp there. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, indeed. Um, our next uh, listener had uh, uh, would like to know, rather, if when God says in the Old Testament, I am, and Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. Are these I am's the same? Well, again, context is is, is everything. Sometimes the term ego I me, which is the Greek rendition of Yahweh, uh, can be used for 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 emphasis uh, in Greek, like the word ego. Ego all by it. Uh, excuse me. The word ami all by itself just means uh, I am. When you say ego ami, you're saying I, I am. It's uh, underscored for emphasis. So context is is everything. But clearly, uh, there's no debate that in some contexts, when the Lord, and again, you know, we could debate whether he said it in Greek or whether he said it in Aramaic or we he said it in Hebrew. Uh, I, I happen to think that the Lord know, knew all three languages, um, listen, the Apostle Paul knew all three languages. Should it surprise us that the Lord himself might not know all three languages? But some would, you know, make a case from, well, he spoke Aramaic or whatever, and so we can't draw out these fine nuances. Well, his listeners did, and God wrote the New Testament primarily in Greek, with the exception of a, of, of a few sentences, and so, you know, the Lord made it very clear where he stood. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, did he say ego on me or did he say Yahweh, taking to his lips the divine name of God? Well, it doesn't matter which one he said. The implication is, is that they understood. Therefore, they put, took up stones to throw at him. Uh, that They thought he was guilty of blasphemy. So when he makes some of the I am statements in the Bible, 
They said he was guilty of blasphemy. Why are you stoning me, he said, for the good deeds that I do? No, but you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So they understood the statement to be the divine name of God. And, of course, the Lord had it under through the inspiration of the Spirit recorded in Greek. So, listen, the Greek New Testament is uh, the inspired text that God gave us. And so some people would say, for instance, in John 21, later on in this gospel, that when Jesus uses different words for love, phileo versus agapao, that it's insignificant because in Aramaic there's one word. Well, listen, in English there's one word for love. Unlike in Greek, there's four words for love. But you can tell contextually whether someone is referring to sexual love or family love or brotherly love by the way it's used. And so even in Aramaic, you could tell contextually. But the fact is, is that the Spirit of God inspired the New Testament in Greek and the fine nuance of whether he wants to use agapao phileo in John 21 when he asked Peter, do you love me, is brought out. And it's brought out for a reason because God wanted to use a language where there could be no ambiguity in the reader's mind as to what was meant. And again, there may be some places in the New Testament where ego ami is used for emphasis and not as the divine name, but there are other places where there is no debate because his enemies understood the claim he was making, that it was a claim to deity. So it's a great question. Let's go to the next one this morning. And if you have a, a question, you can, again, email us locally at TBL for the Bible line at net. Or you can call us at 843-525-1859. All right, 525-1859, as you said. And um, here is our next question, which was sent to us via email. Um, This person writes, in speaking with a friend, I expressed to him that people who believe in oneness theology are not Christians. Because to believe in God and to accept Christ, you must believe that God is who he says he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all existing at the same time as one God and three distinct persons. Please share your thoughts. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, Sometimes this is referred to the Jesus-only movement, also known as oneness Pentecostalism. Today you would find it in the United Pentecostal Church. The Pentecostal movement um, really took a, a, came into the forefront around 1900, but uh, in, in 1906, in a place called Azusa Street, there was a huge revival where people began to speak in tongues, and it really took full steam. Um, but basically, oneness Pentecostalism that is expressed in some other teachings or denominations says, well, God is one. That's true. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Uh James affirms the same truth in other New Testament passages. While they affirm the oneness of God, they deny the triunity of God. So they don't recognize that there are three co-equal, co-eternal, distinct persons in the Godhead. And so they would say, well, there are times when the Father becomes the Son, when the Son becomes the Father, when the Spirit becomes the Son, when the Spirit becomes the Father. And so they argue at their core essence of it, that God takes on different modes. Now, this is not a new heresy. 
modalism, as it was called, you know, has been uh, dressed throughout the ages of the church. But when the Pentecostal movement took full force after the Azusa Street Revival, uh, it began in a fresh way with, with a lot of heresies, not just this one. They argued initially in early Pentecostalism, not only did they deny the triunity of God, they, in fact, they denied the fact that Jesus was eternal. Uh, they say, well, there was a point in time when, when Jesus became a man or, or when God became a man and then Jesus was created. And so, you know, again, there, there was all kinds of mixed up theology. They also taught you had to speak in tongues in order to be saved. And uh, most of them have denied that, but some in the United Pentecostal Church still affirm that. In fact, when they started teaching that, uh, when they started teaching that, too, um, their their wrong views of the eternality of Jesus, a group that came out of there, Assemblies of God, uh, broke off. Uh, I think it was like 1916, if I remember. Uh, they broke off and said, "No, that's that's heretical." But but the the whole idea of oneness Pentecostalism is gross error. I mean, what what do you do with the baptismal of Christ, where the Son is present, the Father is speaking, and the Spirit comes in a theophany as a dove? All three members are there. Or what do oneness Pentecostals do? They they can't handle the text accurately. But again, you know, typically in Pentecostalism, it's always extra revelation. So you got this guy, uh, William Seymour, who's a leader in the movement in 1906, who has this revelation from God that God is not triune. And so he's basically denying passages that are found in both Testaments. Let us, not let me, let us. It's a plural pronoun in the Hebrew Bible, let us make man in our image, God plainly says. Um, you see in Psalm 2, two members of the Trinity who are present. You see in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there you have the Son with the Father. Uh, in the baptismal formula, um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them not in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, one is Pentecostals baptized in the name of Jesus only. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. And they would appeal to passages like Acts chapter 2. And there's another one in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts 19. And they, again, confuse what the Bible plainly teaches. Peter is uh, dealing with the Jewish folks in Acts 2 who had crucified the Prince of Peace, and he indicts them with murder. And when they realize what they've done, and he quotes the Old Testament and how God knew all this was going to happen while they were guilty, it was still according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed the Son of God to a cross, but God raised them up and so forth. And then he documents it from Scripture that God predicted all this will happen. Their hearts are stung and under deep conviction. And they say, well, brethren, what should we do? And he says in one word, repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't think for a moment here or in Acts 19 when Paul deals with a different group of people who had only heard 
of uh, John's baptism, but had not heard that the one that John preached about had come and, f- and fulfilled what John said, and his name was Jesus, that when Peter, like Paul, says to be baptized in the name of Jesus, that when they baptized them, they were not following the clear, plain, baptismal formula that Jesus gave to baptize in the name, singular, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These were people who had not identified with Jesus. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given to men by which we must be saved. As many as received him, to them he has given the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so you cannot come to the Father without coming to the Son. And that's what Acts 2 and Acts 19 are emphasizing, something that oneness Pentecostals miss. So again, this has kind of come to the forefront again recently with T.D. Jakes, who is a oneness Pentecostal. And uh, he has habitually, historically denied the Godhead as being triune, as existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So he has taught the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Father. Now, again, you know, when this happened just a couple months ago at a conference called the Elephant Room, some said it was semantical, but he has yet to come out, T.D. Jakes, to say definitively, look, I was in error. This is more than semantics. I taught it's written in his doctoral statement on his website, and he hasn't changed that. I've taught plain error. So here's my take on it. Again, you know, there are some things that people can be confused on and still go to heaven. For instance, sometimes people have asked me, well, do you have to believe in the virgin birth to go to heaven? I would say, well, yes and no. Now, that may sound political, but let me explain. Um, I had an eight-year-old in my office a week or so ago, and uh, this young person clearly embraced and understood the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, They understood even about the Trinity and different issues and that salvation was by grace and not of works and that that he had put his faith in Christ alone. Now, my guess is if I asked this young person what a virgin was, he wouldn't be able to tell me. So does he understand the virgin birth? Well, probably not. Does that mean he's lost? No. But again, if someone has the mind of Christ, if they've been regenerated by the Spirit, then they're going to understand the things of God. They'll be able to praise them. They'll be able to judge them correctly. And so I think that if, you know, someone is genuinely saved and they begin to, one, they know what a virgin is because they're old enough to understand something about sex— and they understand what the Bible teaches about the virgin conception, if they're a true believer, they will believe it. And if they deny it, it's evidence that they're not genuinely born again. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a group of uh, businessmen who got together because liberalism had walked in the front door of mainline Protestantism. And because it had a lot of Christians who had held hands and under the umbrella of oneness, said, should we still hold hands with some of these people? And what are some non-negotiables? And so they printed a series of 12 books called The Fundamentals. 
They were in paperback form, so most of them haven't survived. Very cheaply printed. I have one in my office that I found in an old bookstore. I wish I had the full set. But still, and you can find them on the Internet, but I don't have the originals. But they were non-negotiables of the faith that Christians had to espouse to. And, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity was included that. And so, you know, when modalism was condemned in the third century, people who embraced it were considered heretics. And they are. They're, they're heretics. Someone who denies the doctrine of the Trinity is a heretic. And typically, when you pull back the veneer, you discover they not only deny the doctrine of the Trinity, like United Pentecostals, they deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Now, let me say, there are other Pentecostal groups out there that are born-again Christians, but I'm talking about a particular dimension or denomination of Pentecostalism called United Pentecostals. They're heretics. I'm sure there are some in the United Pentecostal Church who don't know what their church teaches and they've been saved, but on paper, they are heretics. They have a different gospel. They deny salvation by grace, much less the doctrine of the Trinity. So anyway, it's a great question. Let's go to our next caller. They've been waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Um, I recently heard a pastor, Chuck Smith of uh, Calvary Chapel on a YouTube uh, clip and a lady called in who was pregnant, and she was a Christian, and she had twins who were conjoined in the head, and the doctors recommended an abortion, and she was praying about it, and she asked Chuck Smith for his um, opinion, and he uh, agreed that he believed God wouldn't condemn her if she had an abortion in that case. He then backpedaled to say that he was against all abortion, but in extreme circumstances like that one, he would advise that God would not judge it, but I was just wondering, what was your opinion on cases such as those? Well, I think Chuck Smith, if he said that, and for me to say that he said it, so let me just qualify it, because a lot of people call in and say, well, so-and-so said such-and-such, and until I've heard it or seen it clearly, habitually documented by two or three witnesses, then I don't necessarily embrace it. But if he said that, and I say if, because Chuck Smith, though he's an elderly gentleman now in his 80s, mid-80s, if he said that, he was wrong. He was wrong. Um, You know, that's not a reason for an abortion. A woman can safely deliver co-joined twins without harming her own life. And, of course, history well documents now that co-joined twins, which represent two people, can be, in many cases, successfully detached and live healthy, normal lives. So, no, that would not be a reason for an abortion. And so if he said that, and again, I'm going to underscore if, it would surprise me that he said that. I'm not saying that you're lying or anything like that. But knowing the man's history, because he is you know, known as a good Bible teacher, If he said that, that would really surprise me. But if he said it, he would be wrong. And I can't think of a major Orthodox pastor in the country uh, who would differ with me on that. So good question. Let's go to the next question. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7981. And uh, you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. Um, okay, we're calling somebody back right now, and uh, uh, while we do that, um, let's go ahead and uh, see what, um, there they are. All right, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
good morning, uh, Pastor Brogy. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, uh, my question uh, is: uh, I'd like to know what your what your insight is on on what happens to us after we die. Are we are we asleep for a number of years, or are we instantly taken into paradise? Uh, there's some references there where. Uh, like in Daniel chapter 12, you know, the folks that are asleep in the dust will be raised. And then uh, when Jesus uh, is crucified with the thief, who then um, he says to him, today you'll you'll be with me in paradise. What, what are your uh, thoughts on that, please? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And um, I deal with this in an hour-long sermon that if you go to searchthescriptures.org, since uh, this is played on the air once, it's downloadable into your iPod. You can watch it online, either in audio or in DVD form. But the Bible is very clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, Paul says that in Second Corinthians chapter 5. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so when the Scripture speaks of sleeping— it's very important to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and two, to read it contextually in terms of which covenant are we under, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, and so forth. But even under the Old Covenant, when you deal with a passage like Daniel 12 that talks about those who are in the dust of the ground and how they'll be raised up, that's the resurrection of Old Testament saints, which Daniel puts at the end of the Great Tribulation period. They're not raised the same time the church is, but Old Testament saints are raised at the end of the tribulation period. But um, the Lord, when he dealt with the Sadducees on one occasion, they came with this bizarre example, and they said, well, you know, this woman was married, and her her husband died, and through leverant marriage, and so on and so forth, seven husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, well, you neither, one, you don't understand the scriptures, nor do you understand the power of God. You, you misrepresent God's word, and you you've boxed up God like He's not an omnipotent, all-powerful God. And so Jesus didn't take him to other passages that plainly taught the bodily resurrection, but he he took him to the Pentateuch since they only believed in the first five books of Moses, the Sadducees, who were sad, you see, because one, they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, and two, they taught annihilationism, that when you died, poof, that's it, that, you know, gone, you know, and they didn't believe in, in, in angels. So they were really confused on a lot of issues. But Jesus builds his case in the tense of a verb. He said, look, it's not I was the God of Abraham, but I am. But again, you, you read the, the the Bible in light of the epistles. So let me just read uh, a text of Scripture to you. He says, brethren, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And again, he's talking about the body, that you may not grieve as do the rest, meaning unbelievers who have no hope. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's what we confess when we become Christians in the death and resurrection of Christ— even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So please underscore that. When you die, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so at the moment of death, the real you, the person inside this human space suit, goes home to be with the Lord Jesus. That's why the apostle Paul can tell the church at Philippians, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
there is no gain, gain in death if we soul sleep, body, soul, and spirit in a grave, as Seventh-day Adventists teach. No, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he goes on to say, I'm, but if I am to live on in the flesh, if I'm going to continue living in this body, uh, this is going to spell out fruitful labor for me. Because why? Because Paul's going to serve Christ. And he says, I, I don't know which to choose. He said, on the one hand, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, because that's what happens at death. You depart this body, and you are with Christ. And he said, that's much better. Yet for me to remain on in the flesh, to keep living in this body, is better for you, because I'm going to serve. So again, that's consistent with 2 Corinthians 5, and it's consistent with 1 Thessalonians 4. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him. Who's he bringing with him from heaven? Departed saints, saints who are in heaven. Even the tribulation saints who die during the time of great persecution, a persecution that is unparalleled in all of human time, they are in heaven crying out, saying, Lord, how much longer are you going to allow this torture, this, this persecution to go on with the saints who are on the earth? They're very much alive. They're very conscious, just like at the Mount of Transfiguration. We have some conscious, conscious Old Testament saints. Uh, we, we, we see them, uh, Moses and Elijah, with the Lord in the Mount of Tr- Transfiguration. So God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is what Jesus taught, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to go up before those who have already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So when Jesus comes back, departed saints will come back with him, their spirits. He will reunite their spirit to their body. Their body will come out of the grave. And those of us who are alive at that great day, we're going to be caught up with them to meet Jesus Christ in the air. So soul sleep is not taught. Uh, When the Bible speaks of sleep, it's in reference to the body, and it's a beautiful metaphor. Now, most newer translations don't even translate it sleep. They translate it died. But I think sleep is better, and that's the word God chose in the original. So I think it's best to stick with the original because just like last night you lay down on a bed and you got up this morning— Someday someone will lay your body down in the grave, but there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul. There is a resurrection of the body of both the righteous and the unrighteous, of the saved and the lost. Just as this body is not suited for heaven, it needs to put on immortality. The body of an unbeliever is not suited for hell because hell's forever. It's a place of flame and torment, but the body is never consumed. So even the lost person gets a resurrected body, not like Christ, like we do, according to Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But listen to my message on Philippians 1, 21 to 23. You can go online, and I walk through all the passages in the Bible. So Old Testament saints are with the Lord now. Their body, Daniel 12, is going to be raised up at the end of the tribulation. I take it we're going up at the rapture, at the harpazo, uh, the catching up of the church. All right, very good. 525-1859. I think we've time for one more question. 
This listener would like to know, did you hear Andy Stanley's recent comments about homosexuality, and would you give your thoughts? I did. I mean, it's it's viral in the Christian community. Um, uh, it was the last Sunday in April. He he preached a sermon, um, which you know, it, it, at best was ambiguous. At worst, it was a total capitulation to the spirit of the age, because he he gives this illustration and it's really well constructed. I mean, he if you go, if you just Google it. My son-in-law, Grant Castleberry, showed it to me. But if you Google Andy Stanley and homosexuality, the internet page will fill up. And I think it's like 23, 24 minutes into the sermon. And and he has this illustration of this uh, family in his church, this guy who's married to his wife. And she discovers that he is living a homosexual lifestyle with a man in the church. And so she is very upset. She says, you're not going to worship where I'm going to worship. Um, I, I want some some space. And so um, he and his gay friend go and they worship at another branch of the North Point, you know, community church. And uh, Andy Stanley calls this guy who he has known for some years and said, well, look, as long as you're married to your wife, uh, you can't serve in leadership because these two, at least one of them was serving in a leadership capacity in one of their branch, uh, branches, uh, uh, you know, where he was attending. You know, Andy Stanley preaches in his main church, and then he has these holograms that come down, and it looks like he's on the platform. I, boy, that's expensive technology. Um, and uh, nonetheless, he's uh, he's preaching in other locations. You can't serve in leadership. Is well, I'm almost. We're near divorce. Well, divorce is not near divorce is not divorce. So they get divorced, and then they're welcome to serve in leadership. And the sin of homosexuality is not condemned. I mean, it's just staggering. It's 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 mind blowing. Um, and he refers to. The, the sex that he's having with his gay partner is adultery because he's still married to his wife. It's just absolutely unbelievable. Now, I want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I'm hoping he's going to come out and say, well, you know, I'm, I was trying to build a, a case about dealing with people in grace and welcoming sinners into the church. And But listen, 1 Corinthians 5, you know, teaches if you've got someone living an immoral lifestyle— they're not welcomed into the leadership of the church, then you're not even to eat with them. Now, we, we want gay people and drunkards and adulterers and fornicators to come to our church. We want to win them to Jesus. But, yeah, I mean, how can you speak, especially in this day, on the subject of homosexuality and not deal with it directly? So it was a huge mistake. Now, to me, he's had two weeks to come out and say, hey, I was wrong. Forgive me. I didn't communicate well. Uh, he hadn't done that. So it's bothersome and troublesome to many of us.